The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Good evening. Um, thank you everyone for coming and showing your support tonight and for being here to worship God. Um, I'm going to pray to get started as well. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for today. We thank you that we have a church to come to, that we have a body of believers in our town that we can worship with, worship you with, and Father, that we have a word um, from you to that speaks to us. Father, we pray that we came here tonight expecting to hear from it, and Father, I pray especially that I would not hinder that communication, but that I would just be a vessel transmitting it from you to us. And Father, we just thank you again for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, The last time that I had the privilege of standing behind this pulpit, I brought Psalm 96 as a text. And it was a very rewarding experience for me to be able to take a glimpse into the heart of David at um, one of the high times in his life and see his passion for God's glory and proper worship in his day. Um, We saw in 96 a great portion of scripture that pointed to our reason for corporate worship, um, particularly God's great works in creation as well as salvation. And... um, It also describes the relationship between our worship and evangelism. It's a psalm that was written, like I said, at the high point of David's life in his walk with God when the Ark of the Covenant finally had come back into Jerusalem, when God's presence had been restored to its rightful place in the religious and political heart of Israel, and in a sense, God had come to dwell with them. David recognized this. And so they enjoyed a brimful worship together. Tonight, though, we come uh, down from this mountaintop experience of David's and spend some time with him and in his heart um, at one of his lowest, if not the lowest point of David's saga, when Absalom, his son, rebelled and David had to withdraw from Jerusalem. It was not all that long ago that we were actually going through Second uh, Samuel with Pastor Rick on Sunday mornings. I'm sure most of us remember um, the picture, the big picture having to do with Absalom. He was one of David's three uh, sons, uh, first three sons, and as a young man, he had it all. Uh, scripture describes him as the most handsome man in the kingdom, tall with long hair, and I think. We might recall that Pastor had found a, a picture of what Absalom looked like. It uh, was like a cross between Pastor and Fabio, I think. <laughs> um, my own further study on this uh, actually seemed to Im- indicate that when it talked about Absalom having long flowing hair, it actually also described his facial hair. Um, so it might have been just off slightly. but. Uh, Absalom clearly thought that he was God's gift to Israel and that everyone would be better off the sooner he was on the throne. He helped himself get closer to the throne by having Amnon, 
his brother who uh, raped his sister Tamar. Um, he had Amnon taken care of, murdered, and then he fled Jerusalem and fled his own justice um, for that sin and lived in exile of the kingdom for three years. Through the gracious instigations of Joab, though, Absalom was allowed re-entry into Jerusalem, but was not allowed to come into contact with King David. Absalom's pride grew, and when he was tired of being treated as a second-class royal, he burned down Joab's field to get his attention. A pretty bold move there, as Joab was the leader of David's army. Um, unbelievably, this worked. Once fully reinstated into his family, he worked on turning the people away from the king, his father, standing outside the gates of the courthouse, preaching a message of justice for all people, which is kind of ironic coming from a murderer. But then again, if David would have brought justice to Absalom, rather than ignoring his actions, maybe the people wouldn't have been as receptive to this kind of rhetoric. Absalom believed he should be king, not this tired, soft old man. It didn't matter to him who the Lord anointed or what the Lord said or he had chosen for his throne. The only justice he seemed to be interested in was that which was convenient for him. And then to look at David again, that was Absalom, to look at David, who arguably had let some things go that needed attention. He failed to bring Amnon to justice for raping Tamar, or Absalom for organizing the murder of Amnon. And scripture makes it fairly evident that all of Absalom's efforts to turn the people away from David was quite a public affair, which means that David essentially let his son get away with treasonous activity for months. Um, it is possible that David's gross sins of the past were weighing on him and caused him insecurity, um, and so he just didn't act. Um, but scripture also tells us that Nathan had prophesied um, into David's life that the sword would not depart from his house and that sexual immorality would publicly profane his house um, as a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba, which David committed that sin um, at an impressionable young, or when Absalom was at an impressionable, impressionable young age of roughly seven years old. So with all these things going on in David's life, uh, if you're reading along in 2 Samuel, when you come to chapter 15, you'll see the scene for this uh, epic rebellion um, coming to a head. And the long-reigning, appointed king by God is uh, having his son take over. And so a vulnerable David flees the city with what's left of his family and a small force of only 600 men. It is in this setting that Psalm 3 was written, um, and hopefully that background is helpful. And with these events in mind, we'll read Psalm 3. The title is Deliver Me, O God, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, 
my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Silah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheek, and thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. I found this psalm to be structured in basically three parts with three basic themes. Um, or to say it differently, that David is writing and putting three emphases on three different perspectives. In the first two verses, he speaks of what's going on around him, sort of the outside stuff of what he's dealing with. In verses 3 to 6, he lets us in on what's going on inside of him, where he's at, the inside stuff. And in verses 7 to 8, he writes of his perspective and hope towards God, or the heavenly things. So verse 1. There's trouble all around. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Once upon a time, David was just a shepherd boy. I wonder if at this time, with all that's going on with Absalom, he thought much about his life before being chosen to be king of God's people. But that's the moment that changed his life forever. The moment when God chose him to be the leader of God's people at that moment, David received a promise and trusted in it. Twice he refused to take the crown from Saul, but chose rather to trust God that he would deliver it to him. But now, the situation in his life has taken a turn. David, the chosen king of Israel, once Israel's hero, once called a giant killer and a herald, heralded as a warrior poet, but not anymore, not now. The consequences of David's sin have come to a head, and his whole world is crashing in. Nothing is static anymore. The people have turned against him. His son seeks his life, and David flees his home, his people, and his fortress. All the things that he has come to have affections for, all the things he was responsible for, being forced from his hand by his own son, which I think made it cut even deeper, Yes, there is trouble, and it's all around him. The central issue for David and what he's going to deal with in the rest of this psalm, he's going to have to deal with God's faithfulness to David. Or more specifically, the question, will God save David? Because see, God said that David would be king of Israel. So what does it mean if God's enemies appear to be having success? What if God's enemies or David's enemies, are king. What does David do or think about what God promised against seemingly insurmountable opposition? The psalm is also considered to be messianic in that in many ways it hints at the experience that Jesus had while he walked this earth. He too could say that his foes had become many as the mob came to arrest him in the garden. Although in Jesus' case, he was not going 
to suffer the consequences for his own sins, but on our, our behalf. Do we ever find ourselves in situations like this, when the enemies of the day, maybe the mob of culture, or the workplace, or the academy, is trying to assault the promises of God, or the low places in our life when we've lost jobs, or friends, or our children? How do we respond in our seasons of loss? What do we do in these times? What is our prayer when things are dark? When God's word is hard to trust, we must go a little bit further before we get to see David's response. Verse 2. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Now as David flees past the summit of Mount Olives outside of Jerusalem, with his heart weighing more than the supplies he carries for his time in the wilderness, he sees Ziba on the road, a familiar face. David thinks Ziba was Mephibosheth's servant and the steward of all Saul's possessions um, since Saul had died. Now this may have lifted David's spirit some. He had a good relationship with Ziba. And Ziba came bearing many helpful supplies for David and his men. Um, there was also something else that Ziba brought. Unfortunately for David, Ziba brought news of treachery from Mephibosheth. We read about it in 2 Samuel 16, verse 3, where it says, Ziba said to the king, Behold, he, speaking of Mephibosheth, remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. So basically, Ziba brings news of what seemed to be Mephibosheth uh, aligning himself or being happy that David was dispossessed of the kingdom. David had treated Mephibosheth very graciously throughout his reign, seating him at his very own table, making, I think that makes this news even more deeply wounding to an already battered soul. Just when we think it can't get any worse, as David plods on, he encounters yet another old character, Shimei. And Shimei is just going to dirty the situation even more, literally. 2 Samuel 16, verses 13. David and his men went along the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the peoples who were with him arrived very weary at the Jordan. And so that's Shimei treating David um, with contempt, the rightful king of Israel, um, and sort of glorying in the fact that he's been dispossessed again. So David, weary, rejected, mocked, betrayed. He was this way even before he met these two along the road. Um, scripture says that as he walked up Mount, the Mount of Olives, he walked barefoot with his head covered, weeping. It's difficult to imagine David having any confidence left at this point. This sad, lonely picture is all too similar of a time in our Savior's life when the kingdom he was proclaiming was wholesale rejected by Israel and when his closest friends, whom he poured himself out for, would betray him with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver 
or emphatically deny they ever knew him or go into hiding when he needed them most. It's a cruel and wicked world. We can see that all over the place. And so in the first two verses of this psalm, we see there's trouble. Again, how do we respond to the trouble? How do we respond when we encounter the lies of the enemy? The earlier characters, Shimei and um, Ziba, we find out later in Scripture that what they were saying wasn't even necessarily true. Um, so what do, how, do, how do we respond when God's word seems difficult for us to believe? Let's read on and see how David responds. Shift our focus from the world to what's in David's heart. David's response. Verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. He begins with an inspection of his relationship with God. And before he says anything about himself, he confesses who the Lord is to David. First, a shield. To this great man of battle, a shield would have been a very precious piece of equipment that would have saved David more than a few times. The way that this word shield is used literally implies an encompassing protection. The The ESV translates it, a shield about me, all around. There is no vulnerability with this shield, protected on every side. David confesses here that he is totally secure in the hands of Jehovah. The other interesting thing to note about a shield is that it does not stop the enemies from attacking, but rather absorbs or deflects the blows of the enemy. Praise God we can call Christ our shield, shielding us from the arrows of the enemy and absorbing the wrath that would have been for us. My glory. The Lord is David's only boast, especially at the time of writing this psalm. This broken man and failed father and powerless king gladly glories in the God whom he loves. He really doesn't have anything else at this point. Like Paul encourages believers to make Christ our only boast, to live is Christ as we identify with him in dying to ourselves. He calls him the lifter of my head. All David amounted to, all he ever amounted to, was because of God. He was a shepherd, the runt of the family, a nobody, the one who no one thought should even be in the running for the anointing. But God did. God had blessed David with it all. And here David remembers, as we remember at the Lord's Supper, where we consider the awesome privilege to be invited to dine at God's table. When we are faced with trouble, what do we think about? Do we seek Christ to be a shield around us? Do we remember the grace he has given to us thus far? Do we know how this is even possible? How God, how can God offer to us, offer to sinners his help? Verse 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Silah. Like an infant with the pains of hunger, or a child when they scrape their knee, or the cry of a person in distress, when we're out of options, when our strength, will, and determination 
genius and pride have proven hopeless. We cry out. It's what we do. It's humbling to cry. And where does it say that the Lord hears us? From his holy hill. Not a self-proclaimed holy Roman hill. I can say that because we're all Protestants here, right? Is anybody else excited about it being 2017? 500 years of Reformation, right? That's good. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. God doesn't hear us from that hill or hear us out of the Mount Sinai where the law comes from. He hears us at Zion where in David's time the ark was and where with a sacrifice the people could approach the Lord. We don't pick where God will hear us. We don't pick how to address God. But the Lord has chosen to hear our cries and our prayers through sacrifice at Zion. Hebrews ten nineteen. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is how the Lord hears us. And what should his truth, or what should this truth produce in believers? Verse 5, I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I think for some people, this might be the most unbelievable verse we're looking at tonight. I've heard many sleep-depraved people, deprived people, talk about the real torture it is not to be able to sleep, um, not to be able to get the refreshing rest that you need. Thankfully, I haven't had many nights like this yet, but I'm sure that I will as my children approach their teens. You know, I love the simplicity of this verse. I laid me down, and I slept. David just finishing, just finished praying in verse 4. And then we see him putting this faith in action by trusting and not worrying. Because of David's confidence in God, every dawn he can sing new praises to the sustainer of his soul. I can't help but notice also the faint allusion to our eternity in this verse. Every one of us is going to lay down and sleep someday. But believers will awake because the Lord sustains those who cry out to him. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. With the realities of his exile from Jerusalem set against a word from a sovereign and mighty God, David resolves to be courageous Against the reality that he can see, smell, touch, and hear, he is choosing to let the promises of God given to him in the past override his perspective. Sometimes there's a fine line between courageous and crazy. A purely natural man would say that he's just delusional. Textbook delusional. In fact, I have the definition right here. 
A delusional person is one having a belief that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality or rational argument. An unbelieving or natural man could look David in his face and be justified in calling him delusional. There are tens of thousands against you, like for real, with sharp pointy things, and you're not afraid because God made a promise to you? It's easy to see how someone would say that's delusional. But the regenerated man hears God's word and responds in faith. God made many promises to David, and David actually believed them. Here, I was talking to a young man recently, and during the course of the day, he affirmed to me twice that I am a Christian, you know, because I tried to lead a decent and moral life. The first time he said it, I let it slide. The second time, I had to say something. He said, leading a decent and moral life doesn't make you a Christian, but only maybe slightly better than a dog. And even dogs live by a code, um, probably more strictly than he does. Um, But like Pastor Dan said this morning about the purpose of the church, it's not a social club or charity or theology school although it does those things, it's not, that's not its purpose. And so Christians, I mean, they may do a lot of things and be known for a lot of things, but they are not the things that make us Christian. What makes us Christians is the Word of God and us believing it by the Spirit of God, making new life where there was no life. The end of John 20, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life in his name. So what enemy do we fear that believing in God's gospel wouldn't give us courage over? And so we have David's response to what's going around, going on around him. Verse 7, the third and final theme, I titled it Maranatha or our Lord come, and it's an anticipation of God's response to his situation. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone, and thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. To be honest, this is a verse that drew my attention to this psalm. Um, just It's such foreign language to us today, to speak about um, God breaking our enemy's face. So, arise, a call for God to act, for God to make the reality of his kingdom here on earth, for now, and in anticipation of a final judgment. It is a call for justice to be served, not like Absalom sought his justice, or like David failed to provide justice, but a call to return things to a proper order, to his created order, for David's specific situation to return him to the throne of Israel. For he is using very pointed language now. He calls for violence on his and the Lord's enemies, the people who are right now standing against God's revealed will. Nowadays, everybody gets bent out of shape when we start talking about violence. And so I'll make these four observations. First one, 
It's the Lord dealing out the violence, not us. In the final analysis, in the Battle of the Woods, when all this situation was going on for David, uh, in the Battle of the Woods of Ephraim, Scripture tells us that the woods devoured more men than the sword. David's prayer was answered. He didn't even have to slaughter Absalom's armies. God took care of it. And we can be sure that God will always deal righteously. Second, Paul tells believers that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In, in Ephesians 2, he talks about the world, the flesh, and our devil being our enemies. And so those are the enemies we should be petitioning God about. We should be praying that God breaks the teeth of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Proto-Evangelium, I'm sorry, third, the Proto-Evangelium, our first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Or maybe translated, the seed shall crush thy head. It's amazing to see David use some of the same language. David is just praying for what God has already promised, that he would crush his enemy's head, our enemy's head. And the fourth observation, I wonder if the violence being directed at the jaw or cheek is symbolic of the muting effect it would have after all the lies and deception and treachery, which is our enemy's main weapon being spewed from them. It will finally stop when he breaks his teeth. Do we pray, Maranatha, our Lord come? Do we pray like Jesus, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Are we excited to see God vanquish all of our enemies? Verse 8. Salvation belongs unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. And finally, here we have a succinct summation of the Christian faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and that blessing is upon his people. David finally seems to answer his question. There is salvation. Salvation from all our enemies, including sin, ourselves, and death. And this salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation comes from him, is performed by him, and is freely distributed by him for his glory and as a blessing to his people, the people that he chooses, believers. So believers, be comforted tonight, though our reality and present circumstances can at times not look promising. We aren't basing our hope on cleverly devised fables. We, like David, need to keep our hope in God's word, his promises, and find our protection from the enemy here. We find our power here. We find our peace and rest here. And we'll close with some prayer.